Hey, what's going on, champs? I'm Erin Deliosa. Welcome to an Immigrant's Life podcast, my podcast about immigrants and immigration and everything in between. Thank you for listening and downloading the show, and thank you for supporting my dad. You believe it's October already? Time definitely flies. Speaking of time flying, I'm proud to inform you, my faithful listeners, and the new listeners as well of this podcast and Immigrant's Life, that in three weeks, we will be celebrating its one-year anniversary. Hells yeah, one year. I'm proud of what this podcast have had accomplished in just one year. Of course, I want to thank you all for the support that you generously do for the pod, from liking, sharing, commenting, and subscribing. I want to thank you for always being there, week in and week out. And like Tupac once said, you are appreciated. And please continue to grow this community with me. Speaking of anniversary, I'd like to turn the spotlight on you. So if you are cool with that, the best way is for you to send me a quick message with your name on Facebook or Instagram at An Immigrant's Life. And I will read it at the intro of the anniversary episode. So housekeeping is done. Now let's talk about this episode. Our guest this week is such a great journalist that she got me talking about some of my personal stories. We talk about so many topics, but the main theme was about women that influence us. Having said that, I want to lovingly dedicate this episode to my immortal grandma, Nana Norma, and to all the amazing women in the world. Enough talk. Without further ado, let's get into the show. Isa, dalawa, tatlo. Today's guest is one of the planeteers because she's a real-life Earth defender. She's also a science and environment correspondent and a filmmaker. Everyone, please welcome Gelari Darabi. Hello, hello. So nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Hey, listen, when I sent that message and you said yes, I said, no way, man. It's Why an honor. Are you so surprised? I, I, I don't know. You're like, you know, I'm just some weird dude on the internet, and you're like, you know, Al Jazeera, Vice, Nat Geo. I am totally a weirdo on the internet, too, just so you know. <laughs> I really am. <laughs> We're all just weirdos on the internet together. Awesome, awesome. So before we move on, would you like to promote anything or would you like to introduce yourself? I mean, I'd love to promote this podcast. I think this is an important conversation to be having. And I'm really uh, grateful to be having this conversation with you. Um, let's start there. Awesome. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Coming from you, especially. Yeah. So I, w- I would describe myself as a, a filmmaker, a documentarian. I'm also a correspondent, a host, a broadcaster. Uh, I've been doing it for a long time. And my focus has been science, climate, the environment, Um for about a decade now. And that's been a really interesting journey that my journalism career has gone on. Um, It's a perfect alignment for me because it comes from the heart. It's something I'm incredibly passionate about these stories. And so um, I feel really privileged to do what I do. Mm -hmm, For sure. Where did it come from? Being a journalist. Your drive to be a journalist and also to be a earth defender as you call yourself. You know, uh, being a journalist is an interesting story. Um, when my family immigrated to Canada from Iran, you know, it took a long time for us to get settled. And, and when I say that, that means both parents working incredibly hard uh, to build a life, you know, uh, to get us settled, to be able to anchor us into a, a new land where they didn't speak the language and they didn't understand the culture. I'm sure you, you understand. Um So that meant my parents were often really tired and really stressed and really just sort of, um, you know, trying to surmount uh, insurmountable hurdles at times to to keep our family afloat. 
So I was always desperate for their attention, particularly my dad's attention. I really just wanted his attention all the time. So I, you know, would kind of pay a lot of attention to him and study him and and look at things that would light him up as entry points to try to get his attention. And of course, my parents are very driven by the news. They're very political. They're very interested in the world around them. They always have been. And so we would eat dinner in front of the six o'clock news every night. And my dad would just watch, you know, he would watch the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, CBC, the, you know, the six o'clock news. And there was this one foreign correspondent who was a brilliant, brilliant journalist, Adrian Arsenault is her name. And he would just say that Adrian, she's just so talented. She's a real, really strong journalist. And so right then and there at the dinner table, I announced, well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a journalist. And, you know, I caught my dad's attention. Well, that's a really, that's a very noble and important profession. I, I really think that's a wonderful thing. And I'm like, great. He's paying attention to me. We're like, you know, this is it. This is the, this is the key to get um, my parents to engage with me. And so I would lock myself in the bathroom every night with a hairbrush, you know, doing the Guillory show and my own nightly news, you know. <laughs> you have <laughs> guest. Listen, I'm an only child, so I didn't, you know, there weren't, there wasn't a lineup outside the door, but my mom would just be pounding on the bathroom door every night, like, Guillory, like, come on out, dinner's ready, what are you doing in there? Like, just every night, and I would just be doing my own show, because that was the light that lit a, lit something up in my dad's eyes, and that's all I ever wanted was my dad's approval. Mm -hmm. So that was the entry point into the field. And then, you know, I, I am the daughter of two activists, you know, you know, I, everything I learned about defending what you believe in, protecting what you love, cherishing the land that we live on and not taking it for granted comes from my parents, particularly my mom. My mom is a hardcore feminist and environmental defender. And I would feel so bad for any young person that would get caught littering in front of her because, <laughs> oh, God. You, you were going to get it. I mean, I, I've watched this woman set people on fire, you know, about like carving something into a tree or dropping garbage on the floor. And so I guess the roots from my career are based in my family. That's awesome. I love the story. Um, you said mom is a feminist, but she came from Iran, right? Yeah. Must be hard to be a feminist in Iran back then. Oh, you would be surprised. The strongest women, the most uh, powerful, fiery, uh, strongest defenders I have ever met have been Iranian women. Mm. I mean, honestly, I grew up in a matriarchy. My mom wore the pants in our household. And, you know, she really set the agenda. She really, you know, had a say. She really directed the direction that my family went in. And so I've only ever had strong women around me. Aunts. Mm -hmm. Uh, on both sides who are incredibly educated, incredibly outspoken. Iranian women are, um, and I'm seeing it now, you know, as everybody's reaching out to help our sisters in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Really, I'm seeing a lot of powerful Iranian women at the forefront. So um, I think the roots of feminism for Iranian women come from the moment when their freedoms were taken away from them. Mm -hmm. um, we, we were already a fiery, opinionated bunch, but then when you when you take our rights away, um, wow, you know, you really get to see defenders come to the front line. Mm -hmm, for sure. You mentioned earlier that you moved to Canada. Were you born in Iran? I was born in Iran. We left when I was five months old. Oh, okay. And then why did they move? We, we left in a hurry because the revolution happened. So my oh, father yeah. was a captain in the Navy underneath the Shah, under the old regime. And then uh, 79, 80, the, the revolution broke out and things changed very quickly, hmm. very similar to what's going on in Afghanistan right now. And uh, we had to make a move very quickly. We had to leave everything behind, our, our home, our furniture, our belongings, like all things. We just, you know, took one suitcase and, and we had to flee the country. Like literally one suitcase and then we got to go. Yeah. Where did you guys go? Like, So we, we went to Greece. We were in Athens for a couple of years until we were figuring out what we were going to do. Mm -hmm. um, the stories that I've heard of us going to the airport and trying to get out of the country, you know, the airports were on lockdown. It was very difficult to leave. Um, were stories of incredible stress, 
incredible sadness. My mom saying goodbye to her family, not knowing when she would see them again. Oh my God. You know, so very, very similar to what is happening in Afghanistan right now, which is why I'm I'm just glued, you know, to the coverage and trying to understand, you know, how this how this cycle of 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 experience keeps repeating itself, and what can we do to make sure it doesn't happen to future generations? Yeah, that's crazy. I would like to talk more about Afghanistan, but I want to know more about your history a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. So. Growing up in a Western culture society with Iranian parents, were there moments that this culture clashed? Definitely, big time. I think my parents were sort of, you know, they are, they left everything behind and they moved to Canada to give their five month old daughter a chance to express herself and be free in, in the way that they had those opportunities. So, they wanted me and they want me to have my freedom and they want me to be able to be a strong woman with an opinion and express myself, but they're intrinsically woven into our culture, very traditional and rigid aspects of our culture that are part of the family life. So for me, it was very confusing to grow up with people who wanted my freedom, wanted me to experience uh, everything, but oh, oh, hold back. Don't, don't go too crazy now. <laughs> They kind of really didn't know how to balance, you know, the traditions of our culture with the freedom that they wanted me to have and the freedom that they fought so hard for me to have. And so I grew up, I think, for the first, you know, 10 years of my life, very confused in between both cultures and, you know, what is allowed and what is okay. It was just such gray matter. It was always such a gray area that I had to kind of like find out the hard way. Like, okay, can I open this door? No, get back in there. You <laughs> get smacked in the head. No, don't open that door. Can I open this door? Yeah. But only if your mom's in a good mood. And if your mom says no, yes, you know, she's, if she's rested and she's in a good mood, maybe, maybe you can take this door. So eventually when I became a teenager, I got tired of testing the doors and I started to kick all the doors open. <laughs> just, just blowing them open. Exactly. I took a bazooka to every single door. I stopped tiptoeing around and asking for, you know, and trying to forecast. It's such a hard thing to forecast, you know, mm. it's, it's changing all the time. And I just decided, you know what, I'm going to kick all these doors open. So that was a very interesting transition point in my family life when I stopped asking and listening and just started taking all the opportunities and just kicking the doors down. Um, I could single-handedly say I put every single gray hair on my dad's head, <laughs> but it was a necessary part of my transition because I'm a very direct person. I'm a very black and white person. Like, where do I stand? What's going on? What are the facts? And coming from a culture that's very gray area and up for interpretation and depends <laughs> on the mood and depends on how much rice they've had. And if they're happy or if the tea is on or if the tea is not off, like, I don't have, I can't interpret this. Um, so I'm going to create my own, my own boundaries here. How did they react though when you start blowing up the doors? Well, it was not, it was not easy. Um, it was not easy for me. Uh, our relationship was very strained for a long time. Hmm. They really, you know, couldn't understand why I was so experimental and needing to take so many risks and needing to push so many boundaries. Look at your cousin, look at your friends, I mean, look at this person's daughter, that person's daughter. None of them are doing these kinds of things. Why are you so wild? But literally there is a, a wild animal inside of me, hmm. you know, a real kind of gorilla or lion and i just there's an untamable aspect to me that needs freedom to express herself and to really feel free in my environment um and the ironic thing is it comes from them like <laughs> so i learned it from them this real desire for freedom if you meet my mom she's she is like a wild horse you know she, <laughs> to run free every day, to do her sports, to, to go for her walks, to be in tune with nature. You know, my dad, he needs to be able to speak his mind, to talk about politics, to go there about subjects that are often taboo and really say what he feels. So they planted the seed, but I don't think they expected the Frankenstein that emerged. And <laughs> that's just what being a teenager is all about, right? Of course, yeah, just figure out things and, oh, can I do this? Oh, no. And then, you know what, dude? No, I'm gonna do it anyway. Yeah. For me, that's how we go forward because of the youth. 
Because they don't know anything. They just do it. Till we figure out, like, oh, actually, that makes sense. Absolutely. And I was, I was one of those youths who tested the boundaries to the full, to the full extent. <laughs> I didn't just test the wall, you know, stick my toe in. Like, I, I went full you know, full-fledged into the, into the deep end. And that was just my, that's how I learn. And that's how I evolve. Um, I'm happy to say my relationship with my parents is, is really in a beautiful place now. And uh, they're incredibly proud and they're incredibly inspired. Um, and they're incredibly um, supportive of me speaking my mind, being assertive and being a strong woman. I would say now more than ever. Mm, that's amazing. So, you went to school for journalism in BC? Correct. Is that how you got the job for uh, Street Sense? It is. Um, I remember the day that they came to my journalism school and they just made an announcement that Street Sense was looking for a West Coast correspondent and that we should send in our tapes and our demos because you never know, right? And everybody sent in their tapes. Well, yeah. A big deal. Street Sense was a huge, iconic Canadian show uh, aimed at Canadian teenagers. We all grew up watching it. It was like Sesame Street for us. It was like a big deal in Canada. Mm. And yeah, obviously, we all send in our tapes and our demos and anything we had at the time, you know, VHS at the time for us. And, you know, we're hoping to get noticed. And I, I can't believe that, that I got that first opportunity. I, I mean, when they got in touch with me and said that they really liked my tape and they really liked my personality, I, w I was floored. So to walk out of journalism school uh, into a national corresponding gig yeah. <laughs> was, a true, was a huge door open for me, but, you know, was a lot of pressure on me to sort of step into adulthood very quickly because I had a career, you know, straight out of college. Mm -hmm. But did you have to move or you can stay in BC? So the first season, the first couple seasons, I was the West Coast uh, correspondent and host. And then I became one of the main hosts and they moved me to Halifax, Nova Scotia, which is on the other side of the country in the Canadian Maritimes. And that was a really interesting experience for me as well. How was that? I mean, I was definitely a fish out of water culturally, <laughs> you know. Uh, Halifax is a beautiful city. Um what really saved me from feeling a, like a little bit of an outsider and not quite finding my group of friends and, and my way in the city was, was the incredible hikes. I mean, I'm sure you can relate to me, like just getting outside and some of the beautiful coastal hikes in Halifax that I would do most days was really a saving grace for me and a way for me to connect to something in a place that I felt very disconnected. Mm, that's amazing. By the way, like I said, offline, I probably watched like, 10,000 videos of your reports and one of my favorite is when you went to the Amazon forest oh, yeah. that's powerful can you talk about that well first of all thank you so much for deep diving and watching my work I'm, I'm honestly so flattered um yeah you know the the trip to the Amazon was something else that was really um a powerful story for me to tell the Amazon rainforest is iconic when it comes to environmentalism and telling the story of our world as a whole. Everybody really understands the concept of, of this rainforest and, and what it can do and what it has done for this planet um, in capturing carbon and regulating temperatures and, and bringing all kinds of balance to many ecosystems, as well as providing habitat for so, so many different species, uh, critical and important species. So, you know, going there and understanding the Amazon from different perspectives, indigenous perspectives, scientific perspectives, activist perspectives, was really interesting for me to peel that onion from different points of view. And I got to meet some incredible people mm. who are fighting their hardest to protect um, this beautiful part of our earth. Yeah, for sure. Another one that I like was, obviously, it's close to my heart, is when you went to Don Sol. Don Sol, yes, Don Sol represent whale sharks. Yeah, my dad actually is from that province. Is he? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it, would you say your family is like an aquatic family? Were aquatic sports or aquatic life important for you? Uh, well, I'm not a swimmer. My dad's an amazing swimmer. Really? Yeah, but that, here's the culture. I guess at least where I grew up is they all, the old people will always tell you, don't go in the water, you're going to drown. But they never teach you how to swim. And they're like amazing swimmers. What is that? I don't know. It's just like... Like my grandma is an um, she's a fish. Really? My dad is a fish. I mean, 
I remember we went on a trip to the beach. This is the first time we went to the beach. And he says, go on my back and we're going to swim. This guy is like Aquaman. He just went into the, and we went far. I'm like, yo, I want to learn this. And then I said, okay, teach me how to swim. He goes, no, you might drown. <laughs> you completely just explained what I was trying to talk about earlier. That gray area of <laughs> being an immigrant kid. It's like, we want you to be free. We want you to have all of these days, but be careful. The world's scary. And actually you can't do all these things. And for you, it's just like, no, 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 don't swim because we don't want you to drown. It's like, in other words, they're saying, we love you so much. We want to protect you. Yeah. But I, is it really protection? Because you're not arming me with proper weapons. It's a great question. It's a really great question. Did you ever teach yourself to swim or find someone to teach you or attempt learning to swim? I attempted. I almost drowned three times. No. I'm... Yeah. First, well, it's my fault too. Because <laughs> I'm crazy. But even now, it's embedded in me. I don't, I don't like water. You like, don't? I, I love when people can swim. I love people having fun swimming. But I'll just stay in, on the side. What, what happened when you almost drowned? Can you tell me one of them? Yeah, the first time was we went to this um, resort. My mom's going to kill me, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> we went to this like resort swimming pool and we were swimming in the adult area. And then somehow my, my brother found out like there's a kid swimming pool over on the other side. So it's like, let's go. So I said, okay. So we went, just me and him, and there was nobody there, nobody. Because for some reason, it's closed, uh, the swimming pool. It was, I always remember it was even dirty. There's like uh, leaves and everything. So he went in, but before he went in, he says, I'm going to check it out how deep it is. Stay there on the side. And you didn't listen, obviously. Of course. <laughs> I jump in, and it was deep. It was deep, and I started drowning I don't remember. The funny thing is my brother, instead of just grabbing me and dragging me to the side, he left, went to see my dad and called my dad. And that I still remember to this day, him diving in the water and saving me. That was the first time. The second one, I got pushed. We, oh. went, to the, we went for a hike and there's a big river because the funny thing is where I live in the Philippines, where I grew up, there's a lot of water. And this guy was just telling me, like, oh, go swim, go swim. And I said, no, I don't know how to swim, dude. I don't know how to swim. And he just pushed me. And I went down like a rock, man. Oh, no. Yeah, he saved me after. But, yeah, since then, I'm like, I'm not going to go swimming. I'm good. I get it. There, there must be a lot of trauma there after, you know, almost drowning, you know, and just sort of, sit, you know, waiting there and wondering what your fate will be underwater. That sounds terrifying. But I am starting to pick up on a thread between you and me that uh, is a point of similarity. Mm -hmm. It's when the moment when you said my mother's going to tell me, kill me, but I'm going to tell you anyways. <laughs> I feel like most of my life, it's been like, my mother's going to kill me, but I'm going to do this anyways. Of course. Yeah, there is Let a breed of immigrant where it's just sort of like, I, I got to go for it. Yeah. I, I also, just a touch back what you said earlier, that you were raised in a matriarchal society. I was too. I was like, my grandma was the boss. Oh, I bet. Like, even now she's old. She's like 90 plus. If that lady says something, everybody's going to listen. I love it. I love yeah. it. I love powerful women. I mean, hmm. it. It's just, it's, it's the way that things operated in my house. And I've, I've observed, you know, the other way around in other households. And for me, it's just, it's so interesting, you know, but yeah. in our house, my, my mom wore the pants and, and had, you know, major final say and really set, set the agenda. And my dad is very supportive of that. He's really, you know, proud of strong women. Anytime I mean, he loves watching the Olympics, but all he ever watches is, is the women's teams. And he's so excited for them. And he's just like, they're doing so great. And they're so much better than the men and so supportive of female <laughs> athletes. And he just gets such a rush when, when, when they, you know, like outperform men. Yeah, me too. I, I, like I always say, and most of my friends are women. I get along with women easily because I was raised in a household full of women. That's why, that's why I guess it was good because growing up, getting I would get along with women more than the men. That's less. It's funny because some women will say, "Oh, women are full of drama," but when I'm with them, like there's there's no drama. 
Wait, is it the women saying that or the men saying that? That sounds women, like women says that too. Little drama. Uh, yeah, but I'm like, no, I don't. I'm not not me. It doesn't affect me. I'm good. You know. Let's just quickly go back to Don Saul. What did you do there? So I was there doing a story on whale sharks, uh, part of their migratory path. There's a strong presence in Donsol in the Philippines. And, you know, many people figured out that the key to conserving and saving um, these beautiful creatures is to promote tourism and have tourists, you know, go out on the boats, swim with the whale sharks, experience the majesty, the beauty of the whale shark in person so that they can then too become defenders and and protectors of the of the whale sharks. Yeah. So, Swimming industry and the families that were able to, local families that were able to support themselves based on the tourism and the interest that was coming from around the world. Like, can, can we make tourism ethical, sustainable, and symbiotic with the local communities? Um, and that really was the story. Now, we went out on the boat, myself and my director, four times trying to catch the whale shark. We could not get a single whale shark. And we were, you know, freaking out. We had five days on the ground. We had to do this story. Um, Al Jazeera had, you know, flown us all the way from London to, to come out there and experience this. And we just couldn't get a whale shark. And there's something about the laws of filmmaking, but this always happens on the very last day, on the very last try, on the very last boat trip, on the very last, very last hour of the boat trip, we suddenly got um, a whale shark. Swimming wow. underneath the boat, and we weren't ready for it. We were kind of packing up our gear, thinking that <laughs> we're going to have to go back with our tail between our legs and explain to our bosses how we couldn't get a single whale shark. And out of nowhere, they yelled, "Whale shark!" And my guide—I remember—he picked me up because I was scrambling and trying to find my flippers and this and that. And he's like, "Girl, there's no time for this." <laughs> he literally picked me up and threw me in the water, and I just had to scramble and swim like Kermit the Frog and try to catch up with this immense whale shark to perform the piece. But that's one of my favorite captures and moments that I've performed on camera is just that elation when I come back out of the water. Mm. I high five my director. I'm just so in the moment. I'm completely unaware that I'm making a film or that I'm doing hosting a documentary. It was just pure joy and excitement and sharing something with my colleague. And I think that's one of the most beautiful moments um, that I've ever, you know, expressed on camera. Yeah, I saw it. You were so happy. What happens if you don't get the shot? Listen, this is nature. Like how you, it is what it is. It's it. You find another way to tell the story. It doesn't mean that we didn't still interview the locals and go out on the boats and talk to the marine biologists mm. and the experts. You find a way to tell the story. There's always a way. You know what's been really interesting for me um, during this time of pandemic being a field reporter and a correspondent normally used to being traveling the world and telling reports from all corners of the world mm. and being landlocked and, and, you know, under quarantine and, and, you know, at home is you find another way to tell the story. You use stock images, you use footage from other filmmakers, you collaborate with other people, you write in a different way, you perform in a different way to still tell the story. Um, it's been a really interesting creative exercise for me to understand that you don't always need to get on an airplane to tell a story. And actually, your carbon footprint is it's much smaller if you stay at home and, and get creative. Look at you. Always go back to saving the earth. I mean, it's, it's, it's got to be in all, at the forefront of all of our minds, really. It's ingrained yeah. from childhood, but I, I really, really, what I'm trying to do with my filmmaking is, is bring everybody's presence back to that. Like, mm -hmm. you know. I better the planet today for sure global warming do you think we can reverse it is there a chance you know the the latest ipcc report was a real downer for a lot of people you know the next 30 years no matter what we do we are locked into this this cycle of of you know rising temperatures and you know extreme weather that is due to these rising temperatures um but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't do anything. We really have to do something. It, and just because for the next 30 years, we're locked into this very terrifying um, rise in temperatures and results of it, more migrants, more evacuations, more coastlines rising, more storms. 
um, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't do anything. So I'm, I'm always hopeful whether or not we can reverse it. I don't really know if that's the language that we now need to adapt. I think it's more just it's moving forward, completely restructuring the way we live our lives to be less impactful and less harmful with the planet. We need to live more symbiotically and more balanced. And I think if we sort of take out this, you know, reversal or this target of this temperature or this sort of benchmark that people seem to be psychologically struggling to meet and Mm -hmm. just live more holistically and make it fun and creative and amazing and hold to account the people and the companies that are choosing not to respect um, this planet. I think that that's maybe a more interesting way to engage people in in the issue. Yeah, completely agree. I Listen, I I feel like I don't give 100% to save the planet, as they say, but I try. I hate when people just throw trash. You know, like earlier we talked about hiking, we love our hiking, and you just walk in and you see trash. Why? Put it in your pocket. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, so here's an interesting thought. What if we kind of erase the notion of saving the planet? Because mm. I know when I think about that, I feel a lot of pressure and I feel completely helpless. And then I just do nothing because I just, it's so overwhelming. But like, why don't we just break it down to like what you do every day, what you care about. If trash and plastic is something that really triggers you using that trigger and those raw emotions to turn it into something creative and you know, collaborative that you can share with your community. Like maybe as an artist, you could go around painting some super dope signs that remind people in a creative, fun way to not be such an idiot and dropping your your trash on the ground. Don't be so selfish. Think of the planet you live on and, and maybe you could go around talking to people. I mean, you are obviously really good at talking to people and making friends. Like maybe it's just approaching people and having a really chill and awesome conversation about it. Um, I'm taking this pressure off my shoulders of saving the planet because I find that really demoralizes me and and Mm. takes my power away. And I'm choosing to be more playful and fun and activated and energized when the opportunity presents itself. Mm -hmm. So what do you do personally to, I don't know, for the lack of a better word, I don't know what to say, save the planet. Why do you save the planet, even though you don't want to save the planet? I I just wake up and try to live more consciously and try to tune into the world around me and, and just understand. But being a journalist and understanding how ecosystems work, how tides work, how migratory patterns work, and falling in love with these stories of science and, and ecology – I really am becoming more engaged with the planet around me and understanding it and appreciating it every more, every day more and more. You know, my church is every time I step outside, I'm going to church. And it's just because I'm researching and going down these rabbit holes of understanding like how she operates and how she keeps us alive and how our lungs work and how um, trees work and how photosynthesis works. All these things and my curiosity is my gateway to saving the planet, as you say. Okay, fine. Let's call it saving the planet. I don't know what else to say. You're the smart one. Tell me. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Let, let's, save, let's save the planet. You know, like it's the only way. And like I said, I love this place. I love nature. And I try to teach people, hey, bro, stop littering. You know those people that smoke cigarettes and then just throw it out of their car? Yeah, they should get like ticket. Like, why? But here's an interesting concept that I like to play with. It's called mm. outing your shadow. So it's easy to get triggered and angry about something and to point fingers and to sort of pull that kind of like these people and who are they? But what are elements in your shadow? Mm. What are things that you do that you know are maybe not the best and that you're not too proud about? And can you give voice to that and, and, and talk about it and maybe bring it to light? For myself, I still buy things off Amazon and <laughs> I struggle with that. You know, like it's convenient hmm. and easy, but I understand that walking to the shop and picking something up myself has a much less carbon you know, intensive carbon footprint, that there's workers that are not being treated in ways that I would want them to be treated. So every time I spend money using Amazon, that I'm investing money in in the treatment of these workers. So 
that's me outing my shadow. What about you? Is there something that you're not proud of or you think could be problematic? I don't recycle enough. You know that um, coffee? Like, I think um, I have it right now. I forgot the name. But there's like a plastic underneath and then there's a cover on the top. Totally. Yeah, I know what you mean. Apparently, you can peel it off and then one is recyclable and one is in the garbage. I don't do that. <laughs> I mean, recycling is not what it used to be anymore. I mean, mm. it doesn't really actually exist in the way that we grew up thinking that recycling exists now. Mm. You know, for the longest time, our garbage and our recycling was being shipped overseas to be processed overseas. And then countries started saying, you know what, we don't want this trash anymore. So where is it actually going now? And is it actually being processed in the way that we think it is? Mm something to be discussed in a larger in a larger format you know and amazon well amazon could be a good thing and instead of choosing not to shop there could we push amazon to be a more sustainable and more ethical company as opposed to just turning our backs on it so there's an interesting discussion that's coming out here when you out your shadow and the things that you feel shame about um there's different solutions and different perspectives um that you're able to give it Mm -hmm. I, i agree yeah, going back to Amazon, I listened to, a, I think it's Radiolab mm-hmm. uh, episode that a woman like a, yourself as a journalist went to a sorting uh, place and it was mind-blowing. I was like, that's how it works. It's not like there are rows of places where you can find the item. It's actually a spot and it could be a box. It could be anywhere, but you need to get it in like, I don't know. I, I don't remember the, the number, but let's say 30 seconds. Are you planning to report about Amazon soon? I mean, it's not uh, on my docket right now, mm-hmm. but I, I am very mindful of when we point the finger at large companies, uh, corporations, and how they run business. Mm-hmm. I'm of the mindset that we should be pushing them as consumers to do better, not just to shut them down. I like that. I think that's a missed opportunity. And uh, as a user of their services, as a customer, I want to be more engaged to push them to do better and to do bigger and, and better things for the planet and for their employees and, and for their, you know, the people that they interact with. Mm-hmm. For sure, for sure. When you travel to parts of the world that are not considered safe, how do you deal with that? How do you prepare for minimize the risk? I mean, there's a really interesting thing with me that I've noticed. So when I was preparing to travel to Afghanistan or DR Congo or Haiti um, or even Iran, I do a bunch of research. Often you're reading, you know, news from Western media. So that mm-hmm. sort of builds up a lot of the fear and the uncertainty mm-hmm. and, um, I get really nervous and I think of all the, you know, worst case scenario things that could happen to me. And obviously as filmmakers, we have to take care of each other and our crew. And you, you go through all the checks and balances to make sure that everybody's safe and that there's a plan and there's a, there's an understanding of how to, to operate in that culture and system. And then I land and I'm full of nerves and I haven't slept and I've got, you know, my plans in my head and, and all kinds of, formulas and I land and I look around and there's always this one thought that comes into my mind every single time life goes on Mm. everywhere I look there's somebody selling something there's someone with their child there's just the street life and yes these places have experienced incredible violence and disruption but life goes on at the end of the day everybody is looking to just provide peace and a good life and a good living for their family and everybody just wants to do better for their kids and um once i get into the culture and once i start meeting the people and i get on the ground i just i immerse myself in it and the fear the fear dissipates that doesn't mean that you know there's never a threat and that we shouldn't be careful but i really do have that happen to me over and over again that i build up this anxiety and this fear and then i land and it's just like you're taken by the street scene by life you know people just living their lives and in the case of Afghanistan, I know I keep coming back to the story, but it's just so strong in my mind right now. Mm-hmm. Not only does life go on, but I was able to see some of the 
most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Banda Amir National Park that I traveled to is hands down one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. Mm-hmm. And so it's important to remember the beauty as much as it is, as it is to remember the fear and the disruption and the unrest. Yeah, for sure. Going up, talking about Afghanistan, that piece that you did with those uh, rangers, number one. For, for me, that's number one. Thank you. Well done. I love it. Can you talk more about it? It's such an interesting story for me to remember and talk about right now because I am, as a journalist, desperately trying to get in touch with these rangers mm-hmm. right now uh, during this Taliban takeover and and um, the exit of the U.S. Uh, from Afghanistan. And I'm worried and I'm trying all channels to, to see how they are, mm-hmm. to see how they feel. Um, and I'm, you know, just before I, I jumped on with you, I've been up since very early hours this morning, just in touch with all the people that I met uh, mm-hmm. and all the people that helped me safely get to Afghanistan. And I feel very indebted right now. And I feel very guilty and I feel very concerned um, mm-hmm. as to what's happened to these communities that opened their arms up to me and their homes and their living rooms and that serve, you know, like that, you know, opened up, you know, their, their dinner tables to me and, and helped, you know, me understand their story, I, I feel like I owe them, you know, so much. And so I'm really concerned right now. And I'm, I'm really desperately trying to get some answers. And you haven't heard anything from them? Uh, you know, the situation is not good. We're, we're trying to safely help families leave. I mean, there's, I, I don't know how much I can say without putting people in jeopardy, but mm-hmm. what I can say is it's very worrying. And, um, it's just really hard to be in touch with people every day who are losing hope and feeling incredibly desperate and nervous about their future, having engaged and cooperated and worked with foreign um, agencies and, and trying to build uh, a better future for their country um, in collaboration with foreigners is now a very dangerous thing for them. Mm, for sure. I saw the video of guys clinging on the plane. Did you see the video? I swear to God, I thought it was like some edit. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's heartbreaking. Hmm. It's really upsetting, especially when you know how beautiful that land is and how beautiful and courageous the people are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I just keep going back to that because we can't lose hope, you know, mm-hmm. and we can't. Um, we can't forget and we can't turn our backs, you know? So what, what motivates you and what brings you back to a story is for me is the beauty and is that beauty exists in the land exists in the people. And that's what's going to keep me engaged and and coming back day after day. Mm -hmm. For sure. For sure. Is it, um, is America responsible for it or the whole world should do something about it? What's your opinion about that? I mean, this this is a a big question. I don't know if I'm the right expert to be to be commenting on this. Mm-hmm. We all need to 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 be in, in, involved in so many world issues. We all need to sort of think of each other as part of one global family and be worried about each other and concerned about each other um, much more in general. You know, we need to think in a much more borderless way. And climate change is one of those things that really taught me the issue of something being borderless, you know, Mm. the climate change, storms, temperature rising, um, drought, water scarcity, it really doesn't care where the passports are and what the border is. And I think that we've, you know, the pandemic is another example of that, you know, the coronavirus is, Mm. is it's a borderless crisis. And I think if these crises can teach us to think much more, uh, of global unity and a global family and and to care for one another as family members, you know, as part of one collective, I think that that's always a really important thing. Mm -hmm, For sure. How do you think can people help? Is there like a website that they can do something about like donate? I don't know. The first thing you could do is when you're learning about a crisis in a new country is to look that country up on a world map. Hmm. It always amazes me, you know, when when people are like, you know, hearing about a nation and hearing about a crisis, but not really geographically sure of where it's taking place. 
think the first thing you could do is look up a country on a world map and understand the surrounding regions. Uh, do they have access to water? You know, sort of start to understand the country, the culture, where is it located? Then take it a bit deeper. What are the languages they speak there? What are the cultures that exist there? What are some of the challenges? What's the history? I think that's another great place to start is what's the history of Afghanistan? And what are the cycles and the patterns that you're sort of starting to see repeat themselves? And, and how do you personally make sense of that? Um, and then the second thing you could do is reach out and, you know, we're also connected. Hey, think of how you found me on Instagram, mm -hmm. reach out and, and ask, um, people who are experts in the cause and leaders in this cause, how can I be a good ally? How can I help? And, and the next thing I would say, it's really important to listen. We think in our minds that we have the answer of how to be a savior and how to help and like, oh, I'm going to save the planet and, and the people. But uh, often the response that you get from those who need the most help is not what you were expecting. Mm -hmm. Exactly. For sure. For sure. So with all the bad news in the world, how do you stay positive and are you optimistic for the future of mankind? I get outside. I turn off my devices and I get outside. And as soon as I'm out there, life goes on. Well, nature goes on. She persists, right? Mm -hmm. She she carries on. And um, whether or not we as a, as a species, human beings will still be here, I don't know. Should we still be here? I don't I don't know. But I, I know that I've been given the gift of um, being in a healthy body, mm. getting to experience this incredible nature. And um, that to me is, is such a, it's such a sense of peace and such a sense of knowing myself. And that's really all that I can do. And it's really what I can encourage others to do is to get outside and to deeply listen to their environment and to understand and study how that environment um, gifts us with so many beautiful things. You know, get off your devices, I think, is the first thing I could say. And I'm guilty of it more than anybody else. Oh, I'm bad at it. Bad. How, how bad. When you say bad, how bad are you? It's like I wake up, I'm grabbing it. I go to bed, I'm, gra I'm holding it. Totally. Fall asleep with it right next to you. You know, and the first thing you look at when you wake up as a journalist, I mean, it's my job to be plugged in and understanding what's happening in the world every day. But, it, I, you know, I really have to push myself to give myself these timeouts where mm -hmm. I just step outside and put my phone away. And, you, you know, there's so many things you can Google and there's so much information out there, but there is a next level amount of information that you can access when you just quiet your mind and just step outside and listen to your mm. environment. There is a whole wave of wisdom and, and knowledge that is there waiting for you to tap into if you just go quiet. Yeah, it's the best. That's why I love hiking. I love cycling. It's just, it quiets your mind and it makes you focus on things. I mean, if I was to flip the tables and to ask you, I would love to know, are you sitting today in a place of hope? Are you sitting in a place of despair? What do you think is the future of womankind? <laughs> <laughs> um, having two kids you know raising them and trying to make them you know be good people I feel like the newer generation are gonna be more smarter that cares more about the environment that's what gives me hope is the newer generation they're, and they're kinder oh yeah oh yeah they really are. Yeah, they're nicer. Sometimes I'll say something and I'm like, man, this, these are good people, man. That's really beautiful. I have this theory that our generation are really the warriors that are here to fight and to take power away from places it shouldn't be and transfer it to more symbiotic and balanced systems. And the generation after that, which would be like your kids and, and those growing up are really the healers uh, who are here to heal the land. I love that. Yeah. Heal and heal, heal people. I, I see it too. I see such a gentleness. I see such an awareness, a kindness. And, and I know that, you know, they're really going to bring a lot of beauty and balance and fairness and, and equality and, and kindness and compassion to the story. Mm -hmm. um, but I very much feel part of the warrior generation that's here to, to fight hard to make it better for them and to hand it over to them. And I know when I do, 
that I am handing it over to some very capable hands. That's beautiful. I love that. I love that. Like the next generation are the healers. I, I love feel it. it. I feel it. Like when you said they're kinder, I feel it too. They're they're much more gentle. Mm-hmm. Awesome, awesome. So, if you were granted one wish to cure or solve a world issue, which would it be and why? Oi, 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 oi. <laughs> only one. Yeah, of course you you get only one. I'm not the genie here. It's only one. <laughs> I'm already looking to barter with you. I'm like, <laughs> I see that. Let's negotiate this one. You know, what I feel is at the root of our environmental crises, no matter what they are, is a sense of disconnection mm-hmm. from planet Earth, from Mother Earth, from Gaia, whatever you want to call her, a sense of disconnection from our environment. And so my biggest wish, it may not seem like the obvious answer. I'm sure you would think, okay, I just, you know, I want to solve climate change. But I really, I I feel like at the root of that, it's a psychological issue inside of all of us. And it's a sense of disconnection. And I would love to, you know, be the plug in the socket that really starts plugging people in and waking them up to their environment, to the ecosystems that keep them alive and to the majesty and the, and the wonder and the beauty of the world around them. I think we would build our economic systems and our political systems and our family systems so differently if that connection happened. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. I like what you said there. Like, If you're not littering or if you're taking care of the environment or, you know, planting trees, it's, it, you show that you care. You know, if, if you just litter or you just, I don't know, uh, waste energy or waste water, that, by the way, it's one of my pet peeves, wasting yeah. water. I yeah. hate it because I grew up not having running water. You know, you- it... Your, 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 I mean, your dad's family was so close to water. Oh, well, my dad, he moved. He migrated in, a, in a, where I grew up. Where's that? I grew up in Rizal, close to Manila, about two hours, let's say. But I grew up poor, so we didn't have running water. Yeah, and so uh, what did you guys do for water? Um, there'll be, like, people that has running water. So we'll go after school. Every day, me and my brother will have to go pay the people and then get water and back and forth. I mean, like, I'll say about two to three kilometers back and forth every day. God damn, I, I hate it to this day. That's why I hate when people just run water. It drives me nuts. When I say like, yo, you don't know how precious that water is. You don't know. And I'm like, ah, don't worry. You know, we're in Canada. <laughs> no, dude, that's not the answer. Yeah. So when your kids are running the faucets, do you say to them, when I was your age, I used to have to walk? Yeah, uh, I do. They love my stories, though. So, yeah, but you know what? I'm not saying this to, you know, compliment or anything, but they don't really waste water as much. Because I, like, I, I instill to them that, guys, you don't know how hard it is. Not to have running water. Something that you actually could drink, not you don't get, you know, sick from it. You really just like brought to light for me the power of story. Mm. Your story of what it was like for you to grow up outside of Manila and how you and your family access water was just so eye-opening for me and just made me so much more appreciative of what I have. And I guarantee you, when we finish this call and I carry on on my day, that's going to be in the back of my mind. Mm. When you ask questions like, how do we save this planet and how do we save this world and what can we do? I, I really want to bring it back to the power of story, like what you just shared and and the people that you interact with and share your story with. I think that's one of the most power, powerful tools that we have. Yeah, I completely agree. The power of storytelling is... It- it's underrated. I love hearing stories. My youngest loves stories. Sometimes he'll, in bed, he'll be, he won't even want a book. He'll just say, oh, tell me a story, Dad. And sometimes I'll make up something, and sometimes it's based on my life. And, you know, and I love it because I got it from my grandpa. My grandpa's a great storyteller. My dad is a great storyteller as well. But, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's, it'll be the key for us to teach people how to care more environment is the 
telling the story. Yeah, sharing your story. And it, it's really important in the space of environment and conservation for people of color like us mm-hmm. to be sharing our story. Because I'm not seeing enough of that. And mm-hmm. and that's something that really um, troubles me, you know? Mm-hmm. I really feel like the narrative of conservation and the environmental issues and science has been driven by a colonial voice for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so it's really, really important that people of communities of color really share their story in these spaces. Um, that's something that I'm really passionate about in, in the next chapter of my career mm-hmm. is is putting those stories at the forefront. I always have, and I always, it's always been important to me, but I feel it in my bones now more than ever. You know, it's time to hear stories like the one you just shared with me um, and, and give, you know, spotlight and platform to communities of color to share their story. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I appreciate that. I really do. It's very nice of you. Yeah. So- and I'm, I feel like the other thing, you know, how do you save the planet? You're doing it. Like, how you raise your kids, right? Between I'm the years, trying. Zero to seven are the most formative years of our life that form our entire personality. I think being a parent is probably the most revolutionary thing you can do in this world, you know? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I completely agree. I, I tell this story all the time on the podcast, but I'll tell it again because I love this story. Is two years ago, literally before the pandemic, I brought them back to where I was born. Wow. Yeah, and they absolutely love it. It was so they love it so much that the night of we're leaving, they were bawling, they were crying. And then they go up to me and said, "Why do we have to leave? Can we just stay here?" I said, "There's a reason why I live in Montreal, why I left this place, you know. It's nice right now because we have the money and everything, but when that money drains and it's so you know they love it because they have plans. They said, you know what they said? They told me, why don't you and mommy go back to Montreal and then we stay here? I said, no, 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 no. That's not going to happen, first of all. And then the, ne- the next plan was said, oh, you know what, dad? We can stay here for school. We'll just go to school here. Like, and then you send us money. No, it doesn't work that way. We're going back, all of us. Yeah. Well, you know, it's so it's so interesting. You know, were they born in Canada? Yeah, they're born in Canada. But there's this intuitive, intrinsic connection to the land and the culture mm-hmm. that they come from. And when you put them on that land, the connection is so strong yeah. for them that they don't even want to leave. So, I mean, you're used to interviewing a lot of people who come from stories of displacement, immigration, uh, refugees, like really stories of, of leaving one's land behind. Mm-hmm. How can we bridge that gap? You know, when you have to leave the land you love because it's no longer hospitable or some sustainable and yet missing it from another place, from afar. How do you bridge that gap? That's a deep question. I'm not that smart. (laughs) How do we bridge the gap? You know, I like this. There's a report that I read one time that opened borders let people immigrate, work, and come home freely. I feel like, because, hey, be honest, no one wants to leave their home, right? They want to stay. Even I myself, I've been living here for more than a decade. If given a chance, if I have enough money, I'm going back to the Philippines as much as I love Canada, you know? But I think that's the key. Just open borders, let people travel and work and come back. Freely, if that makes sense, I don't know. What do you think? I think I think it's an interesting concept. It's a it's a future concept that uh, our our generation will not live to see, and I don't mm. know about this generation, but it, it could be a model that um, future living humans may choose to to work with. Um, I think, again, it comes back to the power of story and culture. And I think of how my parents raised me. You know, even though I was five months old when we left, I speak, read, and write Farsi. No way. 
to a level that I was able to interview the vice president of Iran at the time when I was making my documentary there. And I'm still able to connect with my culture and the music and the food. Um, in fact, I'm organizing um, a special traditional Iranian uh, holiday party coming up. It's, it's an interesting kind of um, version of winter solstice that we have in our culture. It's called Yalda because it's the longest night of the year. So we all come together and drink wine and eat fruit and nuts and tell stories to keep the dark spirits away. So you stay they up. They tell stories. Telling stories. I yeah. love that. So I'm, I'm organizing something, an event, you know, to bring people together to celebrate Yalda and, and, you know, eat the traditional food and tell the stories and read the poems and spend time to eat with each other. And this is someone who did not grow up on the land. Mm-hmm. I did not grow up in Iran. And but this connection is strong through storytelling and through my parents and, and, and all the things that they showed me, the beauty, mm-hmm. right? That comes back to the beauty. Mm-hmm, for sure. It's in your DNA. 100%. Yeah. Like going back, just I like what you said there. I just want to add on that is when I left the Philippines and I said, you know what? I, there's no reason for me to come back. Yeah, I have family there, but not really, you know, like I don't even miss it. And, you know, I don't even get homesick. I touched back. We landed. Okay. I got out the plane and I said, I'm home. Oh. Yeah. And then, then when I get back to my town, I remember this night. You know what a tricycle is, right? Sure. Yeah. So I'm on a tricycle. It was nighttime and the, the sky was gorgeous. It, the stars was out. The moon was out. And I said, man, I'm in love with this town. Like, I felt like, like I, ha- I had to leave my love when I came back. Like, man, I'm in love again to this town. I thought I forgot about her. Yeah. There's something really interesting that happens when you return to the land that you feel was not right or you had to leave or you had to escape or, or you had to move on for economic reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really interesting the, the memory that our bodies have. Mm connection like what your children felt that's you know intergenerational memory that you've passed down to them through your dna mm-hmm. you know it's it's still in in them and and as soon as they're on that land they feel it as soon as you're there there's something incredibly beautiful about that connection that's what i'm talking about that connection to the land that's mm-hmm. you just been plugged in like you know you're you're totally plugged in into your environment and you're, you're tuned into your DNA, your ancestors, you know, those who walked and, and struggled and, and, and went through hardship before you so that you could exist. Mm-hmm. There, there's such a powerful alignment that happens there. And, and when you just go quiet and tune in, there's a lot of knowledge to tap into. Mm-hmm. That actually, that's one of my, I won't say regret, but like I wish I did was to interview my grandparents and record it, the stories. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. my gra- my grandma was, I think she w- she told me. I'm not sure if it's correct, but I think she was like ten when the Japanese came to the Philippines, and her and her siblings they were orphans. They had to run to the mountains and hide for three years. And I'm like, man, I wish I had more of those. Yeah, more of those stories. Yeah, exactly. Do you think that perhaps that might be the link? To why you feel safe and, and happy in mountains? Yes, I always say this. It's my grandma. Because when, yeah, when we were younger, she always brings us to the mountains to go hike or do whatever. And actually, it's a silly thing, but I don't know why. But like you, like you said, like the touchback, I'm touching back and I'm returning back to quote unquote home is she always tells us that when you're in the mountain, there are spirits. Oh. Okay? And there are spirits, and you have to respect the spirit. You can't just grab a rock and throw at whatever animal. Or when you need to go relieve yourself, we say this. She told us to say this thing to show respect, to make sure, like a warning to the spirits to say, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm really sorry, but I have no choice. Could you please move a little bit over so I don't, you know, relieve on you? Wow. Yeah. And every time I go hike, I think about her. I, I, I always, like, I don't know why I do this, but when I go hiking and I see a rock that is loose 
and I can imagine a person stepping on it and rolling their ankles, I always pick it up and put it on the side. Yeah. Because, yeah, but it's from my grandma. So, yeah, that's where it came from, to be honest. It's her. From the stories that she shared with you. Yeah, she has she has great stories. But, uh, but we're running out of time. I don't want to bother you. But before yeah. we close out, I want to ask one more question, if you don't mind. Of course. What would you like to see in the near future for you personally and for the world? I would like to honor the ancestors like your grandmother oh, and their story you. and to create platform for us to be connected to the past and to those before us that safeguarded this planet and to learn from them and, and to carry that on to the future, to your kids. So I, I want to be the bridge. I want to be the bridge that allows for the knowledge and the wisdom of the ancestors and, and to remember and to truly honor them and, and to pass that down to the next batch, the healers that we talked about. And I want to do it in a creative and beautiful and fun way. I think the thing I learned about that Amazon series that I produced, people who watched it were like, this is great journalism it's great storytelling but it's just so sad and i'm <laughs> so helpless and i just don't know what to do and i i finished watching your pieces and i just felt like really like hopeless for the world i don't want to leave people with that feeling anymore because i'm not hopeless and so i'm changing the way that i work uh being a bridge between you know, the past and the present between two different lands, uh, but hoping to do it with much more beauty and creativity and, and just a sense of connection. What we just shared together this past hour, it was awesome to get to know you. It was great to connect with you and to hear your stories. And I feel your grandmother in the room. I feel her presence. And I just like, these are the moments that I really want to be having. Amazing. Thank you. Wise word from a wise woman. Again, Gallery. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. You don't know how much I appreciate it, but I try anyway. And the fact that you took the time to put my favorite beach as your screensaver behind mm. you, Rec Beach, that, that's so touching. That's, you know, that's really seeing that landscape and the influence it's had on me um, is just, just such a visual reminder of the beauty around us. So thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Before I say bye, I want to say that since we recorded this podcast, Gallery's friend Alex Dehan at Conversation X Labs Incorporated had organized a GoFundMe to help those Afghanistan female park rangers and their families to build their new lives in different countries. So if you'd like to help, check the link on the description below of this episode and donate. And again, thank you, Gallery, and thank you, listeners. This is Aaron Dolyosa for An Immigrant's Life. I'll see you guys later.